This is All the Cool Parts number 12 for May 28th, 2010. Hey everybody, welcome to All the Cool Parts. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman. This week on All the Cool Parts, our very first inaugural Fugue-O-Rama. I'm going to be playing fugues today from Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Bartok, Shostakovich, Barber, Bernstein, Britain, Bunch of Bees, and Piazzolla. I actually announced last week on Facebook that I was planning this show and I asked people what their favorite fugue was. I got so many responses that this show is actually almost all listener-suggested, so thanks to all the listeners, that's awesome. First, before we get into playing the fugues, I'm going to attempt to give a short explanation of what a fugue is. So, what is a fugue? Simply put, a fugue is the highest, most complex form of imitative counterpoint. The simplest form of imitative counterpoint uh, by contrast, would be the round. This is something like row, row, row your boat. One voice enters on a melody, and then a few beats later, another voice enters on that same melody, and so on. In a fugue, we have a main melodic line that is referred to as the subject. The subject enters alone and is stated unadorned for all to clearly hear. Once the whole subject has been played, a second voice picks up the subject, usually either a fifth higher or fourth lower in pitch than the original, uh, while the second voice carries on with the subject, the original voice plays the counter-subject against the subject. The counter-subject is a second melody that is different than the subject, uh, but works in concert with it. Uh, a fugue can be two voices on up. Most commonly, fugues are for three to four voices. The absolute master of the fugue was Johann Sebastian Bach. Every composer in history that came after Bach had studied his fugues in awe and sought to test their own compositional skill by writing their own fugues. I'm going to use an example to illustrate how a fugue works before we really get into listening to all these different fugues, because it's important to remember that all fugues work in basically the same way, this way that Johann Sebastian laid out. You can think of Bach's fugues as a suit. Every time a different composer gets the suit, they have it altered to fit their own body. It's the same suit, it just looks different depending on who's wearing it. Bach wrote a ton of fugues throughout his life, and at the end of his life, he wrote a huge compendium of fugues as a blueprint to composers of subsequent generations. In it, he laid out exactly how a fugue is written and all the different techniques one can use to write fugues. This was called De Kunst der Fuge, or The Art of Fugue. I'm going to use the first fugue from The Art of Fugue to demonstrate how a fugue works. In this first example, you'll hear the fugue subject stated. In this second example, you'll, you'll hear the subject picked up by the second voice a fifth higher, while the original voice plays the counter-subject against it. 
This being a four-voice fugue, all four voices enter on the subject in succession. After that has been completed, there's a bridge of sorts called an episode that is made of fragments of the subject presented in sequences in all the different voices. Then after this episode, the view continues on its journey of developing the subject and countersubject. So now I'll play the whole fugue for you. The first fugue from Johann Sebastian Bach's The Art of Fugue. And now on to the fugues. We just heard one of Bach's most simply stated fugues. It was written really more for educational purposes than to be performed. 
Now we're going to hear a fugue by Bach that was meant to be performed. This fugue was suggested to us by Joseph Gregorio, the great fugue in G minor, BWV 542 for organ. Uh, And when I asked Joseph what he thought was so cool about this, he said um, that the beauty of the subject and the perfect tailoring of the counter subjects are what have captivated me for years about this fugue. The subject, which is rather long, is almost like its own little piece in itself, beginning in G minor, tonicizing B flat, and then moving back to G minor. Um, This fugue is for organ and is heard here just as Bach himself might have played it. One thing I want you guys to try to do is to divorce yourself from the connotation between the organ and sitting bored in church. Um, This is not church music. And oftentimes people in our era hear the sound of the organ and immediately think, Ugh, I feel like I'm in church. Um, this is <laughs> this is simply an amazing fugue for an amazing instrument. Just listen to the music being played and not so much the sound of the instrument. Try to follow the subject's journey. Uh, really, that's what I want you guys to listen to, really in all these fugues that I'm going to play. Just listen to the incredible journey that the composer takes this subject through.
Our next fugue was suggested to us by Rusty Jones, the final fugato of Mozart's Symphony No. 41, his Jupiter Symphony. A fugato is usually a short fugal section of a symphony or sonata. In this final fugato, Mozart takes five themes from the symphony and uses them as five fugal subjects. He combines these five subjects to create a quadruple fugue. A fugue with five subjects, as opposed to having just one subject in most fugues. This is an act of absolute compositional mastery, having five subjects that can not only function on their own as standalone themes, but all then work in concert with one another. I asked each person who suggested fugues why they thought their fugue was so cool. Here's what Rusty said. 
Uh, he said, I suggested that symphony because of the amazing contrapuntal skill shown by Mozart in the finale. It's surprising enough that he concludes the finale movement of the symphony with a fugue, but it's absolutely glorious that it's a quintuple fugue, five independent subjects, all of which fit together contrapuntally and all of which can serve as the bass or an upper voice. I don't know the reason why Mozart opted to do this other than showing off his craft but maybe there's some sort of historical documentation floating around out there that explains the reason for this unusual ending. Uh, and if there was, I was too lazy to look for it. <laughs> um, quintuple counterpoint might not sound like a great trick to any musical novices in your audience, but anyone that has attempted to write simple invertible counterpoint, that's two lines that are interchangeable as bass or melody, can truly appreciate the genius of these five independent lines in typical Mozart style. Um, they're all catchy tunes as well. So uh, let's listen to this final fugato from uh, Mozart's Symphony Number no. 41. From Mozart, we move on to Beethoven, his monumental Grosse Fuga, or Great Fugue, from his string quartet in B-flat major, Opus 130. This was suggested by a couple listeners, Rena Esmail and Nick Vassallo. The Grosse Fuga is a double fugue, a fugue with two subjects, and is among Beethoven's last works, written when the composer was completely deaf. When it was premiered in March of 1826, reception was mixed at best, Many thought the music incomprehensible, and basically thought the old deaf man had finally lost his mind. <laughs> this excerpt comes from the middle of the fugue. Thank you. 
Listener Noah Luna suggested our next fugue, the opening Andante Tranquilo from Bella Bartok's Music for Strings, Percussion, and Celesta. When asked what he thought was cool about this fugue, Noah replied, uh, One of the reasons I love the first movement of Music for Strings, Percussion, and Celesta is the way that the subject has a chance to develop before other entrances come in. Too often, we're given fugue subjects which are stated, transposed, and restated, and we have to wait for an episode before they develop into something extraordinary. Bartok presents a motive, immediately expounds upon it, then hits us with the next entrance. Also, the pitch levels that he brings each entrance in on, radiating in fifths from the tonic center, is a cool device. Nodding to the fugal traditions, but carving a uh, path for itself in new techniques. Freaking awesome! And uh, he didn't really say freaking, he used that other F word. Um, But I totally agree, it is freaking awesome. Um, Bartok's Fugue definitely has a different feel than the other fugues on this episode. It's a slow-moving, dark, and sinuous fugue. The subject slithers around snake-like, graceful but with an ominous intent. It slowly builds to a thundering climax, and even though this fugue sounds different than most typical fugues, it's important to remember that at the very heart of it, it still works on the exact same principles as any Bach fugue.
Our next fugue comes to us from Benjamin Taylor, fugue number six in B minor, opus 87, from Dmitry Shostakovich's 24 Preludes and Fugues for Piano. Benjamin said about this fugue, uh, what I like about Shostakovich's opus 87 B minor fugue is how the two halves of the subject are rhythmically distinct, though they employ similar motivic structure. So throughout the fugue, these distinct parts of the subject are easily identifiable and offer textural variety. And uh, what Benjamin ta- is talking about, uh, about this subject, it starts in long tones uh, and then continues in shorter, livelier notes in an almost dance-like rhythm. So you have this kind of delineated two-part subject. Um, Shostakovich sought to emulate J.S. Bach's monumental achievement of his well-tempered clavier, a collection of 24 preludes and fugues in all keys. Composing a set of 24 preludes and fugues would be one of the ultimate tests of a composer's skill, and only a handful since J.S. Bach have tried.
The next fugue is from the final Allegro con Spirito movement of Samuel Barber's Piano Sonata in E-flat minor, opus 26. The fugue subject is brilliant, exciting, and jarring, and Barber uses it to create a highly virtuosic and bombastic four, even at times six, voice fugue. Listener Jessica Rugani suggested this highly energetic fugue. Next comes the perfectly titled fugue for this podcast, Leonard Bernstein's Cool from West Side Story. Yeah, even I was like, there's a fugue in West Side Story? It's actually so cleverly executed and done as a dance number that you don't even notice there's an actual fugue going on. Michael Calkin suggested this one, and when asked why he chose this fugue, he replied, since it's, since, uh, since it's a stage work... I judge for coolness, basically on the basis of how the dramatic goals are served. It's a very tense moment in the play. The subject of the fugue consists of nothing but seconds and sevenths, well, mostly anyway, and what could be more tense than that? Also, I love the way it builds up imperceptibly from these growling, sustained notes with occasional offbeat smacks into a very busy and chaotic texture without losing track of its role as dance music. Mm. 
next two fugues were chosen by me. The first we'll hear is a really cool and highly unusual fugue by Benjamin Britten from his song cycle Serenade for Tenor Horn and Strings. This is the central song from that cycle titled Dirge. The voice intones a repeating melody singing an anonymous medieval text while underneath, beginning in the basses, like really low, a complex fugue unfolds. The fugue, goes, uh, the fugue gains slowly in intensity until we get to the entrance of the horn on the fugue subject that acts as the piece's climax. Final fugue for this first All the Cool Parts fugarama is the opening fugue of Astor Piazzolla's La Muerte del Angel, or The Death of the Angel. Piazzolla uses his native Argentinian dance form of the tango to pave a new sound in classical music. Here's Piazzolla's own group performing, and we can hear Piazzolla himself on the bandoneon, an accordion-like instrument. Thank <laughs> you. 
Welcome to this week's edition of All the Cool Parts Idol. This week we are featuring a piece submitted to us by composer James Holt. A piece for, a really cool and interesting piece for two bass clarinets performed by the really fantastic group Squonk. Um, the piece is titled Action Items. And first I'll read you a little bit about James. Uh, composer James Holt Reich's music Reichs writes music for a wide variety of mixed and standard chamber ensembles, orchestra, wind ensemble, solo instruments, and works featuring voice and modern dance. His music has been performed across the United States and in England, including recent and upcoming performances in New York City, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco. Uh, James is currently living and composing in New York, New York, and his piece, uh, Action Items, well, I'll just read you his program note <laughs> for this piece. Uh, his program note is, if you, are a musician, uh, if you are a musician or composer trying to survive in one of the largest cities in the United States, you almost certainly need to find a day job to supplement your income. And if you have a day job, it's probably either a mind-numbing entry-level position in an office or a temp job for one of the endless list of companies in corporate America. If you've worked in one of these places, as I have, then you've grown accustomed to hearing an endless and seemingly meaningless stream of corporate buzzwords like pushback, front end, back end, drill down, circle back, best practice, take this offline, COB, and the list goes on and on. A personal favorite buzzword of mine is action items. While I was working on this piece for Squonk, I was in a meeting where someone would not stop using this phrase. Somehow, action item struck me as a better title of this piece rather than the important subject of this mission-critical meeting. I also wanted to mention that James is not just a composer. He's also a fellow podcaster, and he does a fantastic podcast called uh, My Ears Are Open. This podcast is one where he interviews performers, uh, specifically performers who, who play new contemporary classical music and uh for anybody who's interested in new classical music composers performers i highly recommend you check it out so without further ado here is james holt's action items for two bass clarinets Thank you. 
Hey, performers, performing ensembles, and composers, All the Cool Parts podcast wants your music for All the Cool Parts Idol. If you're an emerging artist with a good quality recording and you'd like All the Cool Parts podcast to share it with the world, please email sound files and other details to allthecoolparts at gmail.com. Help me share your music with the world. And that does it for All the Cool Parts number 12, our first Fugarama. And I hope to do many more of these Fugaramas because I like fugues. Um, thanks to everybody who suggested fugues. Uh, I really appreciate it. <clears throat> and next time we do this, um, hopefully we can have um, as many or more listener suggested fugues. Uh, if you want to reach us and email us, and ask us questions and give us comments so that we c- I can read them on the show. And please do. Um, email us at allthecoolparts at gmail.com. You can see the show notes at allthecoolparts.blogspot.com. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash anthonylandman. And you can visit me on the web at anthonyjosephlandman.com. And uh, we're going to go out on another listener-suggested fugue. This one comes to us from Robinson McClellan. This fugue is on the subject. The fugue subject is the Nokia ringtone. <laughs> and uh, you'll know exactly what I mean when you hear it. Uh, so here it is, and we will see you guys next week for another All the Cool Parts.